Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. We're podcasting from Northeast Ohio. This is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series, Race and Democracy in Northeast Ohio, a collaboration with the School of Peace and Conflict Studies and the Center for Pan-African Culture at Kent State University. The project includes a 10 podcast episode series focused specifically on the intersections of race and democracy in Northeast Ohio. We are also planning community workshops on the topic of race and democracy and developing online curricular materials like activities, toolkits, and concept pages. This series is made possible with funding from Mark Lewine in the John Gray Painter Program. Check out our website to learn more about our upcoming events and stay up to date on new content. You can find us at www.growingdemocracyoh.org. I'm super excited today uh, to be co-hosting with Dr. Shamara Arki and to have with us our guests, Tessa and Sparna. Tessa Juan um, is a connector, facilitator, organizer, and co-director of OPAW, O-P-A-W-L. She's the oldest daughter of Chinese immigrants and is motivated to reduce, prevent, and heal from trauma caused by systemic violence. Some experiences that moved Tessa into organizing work included the death of Emily Olson in 2014 and the resurgence of white nationalism and anti-Muslim bigotry in 2016. Tessa lives in Cleveland with their partner, Zed, and enjoys experimenting with new recipes. We also have with us Saparna Baksarin. Uh, who is a non-resident fellow at the Institute on Race, Power, and Political Economy at the New School and a lecturer at the Ohio State University in the Department of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, where she teaches classes that include U.S. immigration and migration, health and inequality, gender and democracy, and race and public policy. Previously, as a senior researcher at the Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, Berkeley, her work explored the relationship between public health and wealth in post-industrial cities and communities. Her work focused on the city of Detroit and its communities within the context of the restructuring of Detroit's Great Lakes Water Authority, water inequities, austerity policies, and the city's history of systemic racism and shrinking social safety net programs for its residents. She has also worked for the state of Ohio as a health policy researcher and community educator, particularly in relation to affordable health care and safety net programs. We're super excited to have both of these guests with us. So we are super excited to have you both with us today. Today, I'm, I have the privilege of uh, co-hosting uh, with Shamara, and we have with us Saparna and Tessa. And I, I want to get us started. I know we, you know, read your bios in the intro, um, but it, you know, it's always really nice to have you all kind of, you know, tell your own story in your own voice. Um, so, Saparna, uh, will you tell us a little bit about who you are, and then Tessa, would you follow after that? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you both, Ashley and Shamara, for the invitation. I'm super excited to be sharing this space with 
you all, and as well as Tessa. Um, I, a little bit about myself. Um, I've often occupied um, these kind of in-between spaces. Um, I occupy in-between spaces as a scholar and an organizer, um, um, kind of with a toe in the academy and outside of the academy. Um, as um, somebody um, who's an immigrant, for instance, to this country. Um, but uh, currently, I am a non-resident fellow at the newly formed Institute on Race, Power, and Political Economy at the New School, uh, where I work um, on um, intersectional approaches to wealth inequities, um, specifically as it relates to communities of color. Um, I'm also a lecturer at um, The Ohio State University um, in the Women's Gender Sexuality Studies Department, um, and I also I teach a course at the John Glenn College of Public Affairs. Um, I'm also excited to be here as one of the founding members of OPAL with Tessa. Um, and OPAL is a community grassroots organization for Asian American Pacific Islander and Asian Pacific Islander women and non-binary persons. Um, it's a we aspire to be a progressive, radical, uh, feminist um, organizing space. Um, and so that's a, a little bit about myself. That's awesome. Tessa, do you want to share a little bit about who you are as well? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I'm Tessa. Um, I identify as a connector, a facilitator, and um, community organizer. Um, I've been a longtime volunteer with OPAL, um, but became one of the statewide co-directors uh, in 2020. And um, I'm also uh, Asian American. I identify as a woman of color um, and specifically someone from the Chinese diaspora. Um, and I have a, a lot of passion for um, immigration issues um, as well as um, destigmatization and, and more understanding of mental illness um, as someone whose family has been really impacted by um, systemic trauma and mental illness um, and kind of seeing the connection between those things. So I'm very motivated to um, work with, with other folks at OPAL and, you know, throughout the progressive ecosystem um, to reduce and prevent that trauma um, and to build joy and connection and healing together. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, to both of you, Superna and Tessa, for joining us. Um, and thank you for sharing a little bit about your story. Uh, with that, I want to open our conversation by being really intentional about the language that we're using. Um, and so I know that people may identify, uh, folks of Asian descent may identify various ways, Asian, Asian American, AAPI, APIDA. I'd like to take a little bit of time to hear actually from uh, both of you around how you identify and maybe why you choose that specific identity to identify with. Uh, maybe Tessa, you want, okay, Superna, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I would say that um, I use multiple categories um, of identification. And um, 
Um, I often uh, remark um, that when I first came to the U.S., I immediately became a woman of color. And uh, before that, I was somebody from the third world. Um, and I had heard grandparents and parents refer to us as we are in relation to the West. We are like the third world, but also quote unquote colored people in the third world. Um, and, and so those were all the categories that, um, that I was immediately familiar with. I also identify as Indian, um, and Brown, um, and, um, um, API, um, and I know the PETA part, uh, with the D, uh, uh, also is referencing Desi, um, I, you know, and um, that also means different things. Um, it, it, you know, it could mean native, it could mean uh, from the kind of, you know, sub, uh, South Asia sub, subcontinent, that area. Um, so uh, I, I kind of use uh, multiple categories uh, and, and uh, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. So building on the conversation around how we specifically identify, I'd like to open it up again uh, to get some responses to what is meant by the concept of social construction. So when we think about our identities and many of the terms that we use are socially constructed. Um, so, you know, they're designed by the powers that be. But what do you think, Superna? What is meant by the concept of social construction? Yeah. Um, and I'm also kind of linking it to like the question that you asked me before, like, you know, how do you identify? I mean, there's a PETA, there's AAPI, et cetera. And, um, and th this involves social construction in that sense involves the creation and production of categories um, like our social identities. Um, so literally um, um, the building of the production of um, defining uh, one's place and um, the power to name and infuse meaning into those categories um, and those identities. Um, now, there are uh, many who would say that those with more power and resources have, you know, greater ability to define um, and lump people together. So something like, for instance, AAPI or APIDA is like massive. I mean, it involves so many different communities with so many different histories, um, histories of colonization, of militarization, of empire, and so on, um, across uh, various um, racial identifications as well. And so um, most recently, I had uh, come across um, legislation in the U.S. I'm going back to like the 1917, where they had literally invented this Asiatic barred zones. So I was kind of like, you know, thinking about like, okay, the Asiatics. <laughs> so like, who are the Asiatics? And here you have through... Um, deliberate policy making, the construction of 
these people, uh, uh, you know, very much um, were seen as kind of undesirable uh, in terms of either entry. So, um, so for me, social construction, uh, when that question about social construction has to do with who is doing the constructing, under what circumstances, under what context, for what purpose, and what's the impact of that. Um, and since it's social construction also implies that it's human-made, um, the purpose of those constructions is important to note. So those with more resources uh, and powers through these social constructions could define who is, for instance, who is American, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be AAPI or Black or Latinx or Indigenous. Um, and so, um, but it also creates systems of oppression or inequities. Um, but in the same vein, um, organizers and activists and so on um, can, um, to some degree, engage in this process of also you know, read, claiming uh, the process of naming and infusing it with different values and meanings um, as we create spaces uh, in, in the world for, for us. Yes, thank you so much for that. Really understanding um, the dynamics, right? The sociopolitical context of where we are. Um, I want to invite Tessa into the conversation. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, respond to those same prompts around um, how do you identify? We know that lots of folks are identifying, uh, people of Asian descent may identify as Asian, Asian American, AAPI, APIDA. Um, so I wanted to ask you um, to how do you identify, but then really building on that, how do we, what is meant by the concept of social construction with our identities? Yes, so I love the question about um, how I identify because I think it's really complex. And for me, it's really changed a lot over time. Um, growing up in Ohio, um, basically from the fourth grade until uh, beginning of high school, I lived in a small town called Sandusky. And, um, you know, it was a predominantly white town, predominantly white school. And I think during that period of time where I was really growing into my identity as a teenager, um, I wanted so badly to be seen as just American. Um, and then, you know, as I grew into my uh, early 20s, that kind of evolved into um, a claiming of Asian American identity as I started to learn more about um, Asian American history um, and, you know, some of that history of, of activism that started in, um, in the 1970s, you know, inspired by the civil rights movement. And, um, but even at that point, I still was like, I'm Asian American, not Asian. And there was this like pejorative context to, or connotation to, you know, just being Asian. And um, I think, yeah, more recently, I've definitely uh, built so many more relationships with, um, with people that were not born here and do not, you know, strive to be seen as American. Um, you know, people who proudly um, claim, you know, their their birth country's heritage and um, members of my own family. Um, so, 
I, I think right now I, I kind of identify as Asian American as well as Asian, as well as, you know, a member of the Chinese diaspora, um, which is, you know, that specificity of my experience that um, even within the Chinese diaspora, there's so much, uh, so many different layers to, to what that means. Um, and I would also say it's taken me actually more time to identify as like Chinese <laughs> in the Chinese diaspora, surprisingly, um, because, you know, in the, in the context of like Asian Americans and um, AAPI uh, organizing spaces, um, it's actually people of Chinese descent who are kind of seen as taking up a lot of space, you know, within that community um, and, you know, East Asians and Chinese Americans kind of being the, the people that are most centered when um, Asian Americans or APIs are being talked about. So, um, yeah, it was like early 2020 that I found myself for the first time in a space that was um, just for people of the Chinese diaspora who identified as, you know, leftist and progressive. And that was really eye-opening um, because I think there is a really important need for um spaces that are specific in that way, because there's certain conversations that only we can have. Um, but yeah, other than that, I would say, you know, identify as a child of immigrants um, and also um, as a Muslim, a Muslim person in America, which um, is kind of more recent. I, I recently um, got married and converted to Islam um, and have had close relationships with Muslims my whole life. Um, so that intersection of like Muslim and Asian identity is also really interesting because Asia is the, you know, the place where with the largest Muslim population in the world. Um, but it's not always seen that way. And we don't always think about Muslims when we think about Asia. Thank you both so for sharing your stories um, with us and, and kind of sharing this space and, and being and bringing your authentic selves and kind of it's really powerful to hear kind of the, how our own identities change and evolve as we change and evolve and how we claim um, those identities over time. And, um, and, and I want to go back to uh, something that Saparna said um, when er, a little bit earlier in terms of thinking about kind of when we think about socially constructing the other, um, that is usually a framework for someone who looks like me, a white person who creates um a group um, as a you know way of othering other people, right? As a it's built into policy, right? In my own field, the social like, the social construction of other is built into the fabric of how we develop policies, how we implement policies, who has access, and we create labels, right? Um, and often in very pejorative uh, ways. Um, but one of the things you mentioned, Saparna, was kind of this reclaiming in the naming kind of of collective identities for um, for power. Uh, and and I, you know, would you, uh, maybe I'll go to Tessa first. Would you be able to speak to kind of the power of um, kind of of claiming um, that those identities and, and what that can mean um, in terms of, you know, how we kind of reshape how we understand and socially construct different identities. That was a complicated way of asking that. <laughs> yeah, I think what you're referring to is this kind of age old uh, playbook of people in power um, blaming 
or scapegoating, you know, a certain group of people um, for all of society's problems. And it's a really convenient strategy that has worked over and over again to, you know, gain more political power, um, to convince, you know, people, masses of people that um, a minority is is responsible for, for certain issues. Um, but I think in terms of reclaiming, um, reclaiming identity or, or othering or groupings, um, Suparna kind of referred to this, um, you know, there was a long time where people who looked like me were called Orientals. Um, and that wasn't really, that was not a term that, you know, we chose for ourselves. Um, and in the, in the sixties and seventies is when, um, Asian American is like the term that uh, organizers and community activists started to use. Um, and it was out of, it was a really political um, identity label kind of recognizing that, um, you know, in Asia, we wouldn't identify as Asian <laughs> because uh, you, you know, there's way more, you know, nationalistic or ethnic identities that people, um, people claim but here, you know, we're we're being impacted by so many of the same forces of um, white supremacy, uh, immigration policy, of people just literally like thinking that we're all the same. Um, so it's kind of a recognition of like a common stake, um, a common, um, you know, source of oppression and this desire for solidarity. Um, and I don't think it's a perfect term, but I think just knowing that that's the history of the term Asian American um, to me is really inspiring. Like I, I think I'd love to see that history um, really more widely, widely understood because um, I think some people today see Asian American as um, yeah, just this kind of organic um, grouping that always existed. Um, but yeah, and it's evolving. So AAPI, I think, could go under a similar kind of metamorphosis of becoming more of a, a show of political solidarity rather than just this government-assigned label. Sparna, do you want to add anything to that? Any additional contributions, comments? Sure. I mean, one of the things, just to piggyback on what Tessa was saying, is it, um, one of the things that struck me is that um, how these terms and categories um, that are produced via these social construction uh, social constructions um, are constantly shifting um, they, they change uh, across time and space um, and um, and they're, they're profoundly political um, so they're, they're political terms. So they can be political in that it could be used to as a tool to marginalize, or it could be political as a tool uh, for solidarity. It can be a tool for liberation. Um, so it, it's like it, it, it depends on where you're coming from for what purpose. Um, so while... API or APIDA, I mean, it's there. there's like so much, it's so heterogeneous and there are so many different histories. Um, 
it, you know, it, the, the, the term can be tactical or strategic, just like a lot of, all other social identities, whether we're talking about black or African-American or Latinx or Hispanic or, you know, native um, um, or indigenous, uh, including other identities like queer or trans or woman. I mean, these are all like, you, you can kind of look at it in t- time and space. Who's doing it for what purpose? I mean, I think part of it is uh, if one does naming things, uh, naming your um, events, naming things about your reality, it's important in terms of uh, not only just visibility, but you actually give birth to the reality that one lives in. So, so concepts and categories can serve that, that kind of function and also changing the meaning of it because a lot of othering, um, you know, involves creating a hierarchy. Um, so whether we're talking about, say, white and black or male and female, they, they, they set it up in a way, othering creates hierarchies and these hierarchies are infused with values. And those values can either marginalize or the values that you infuse can generate uh, liberatory, um, it has liberatory potential. Um, and so, um, so in that sense, I see social identities uh, or social constructions um, serving both ends, of course, very uneven, um, but um, um, and thus the role of 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 um, kind of challenging the kind of established values, such as Oriental, for instance. I wanted to add another um, just example of how these identities are socially constructed. Is if you look at the differences between the UK and the U.S. and how they label different groups. Um, you know, Asian, when, you, when you're talking in the U.K., it's really referring to people of South Asian descent. Um, and that's just because of, you know, the history of colonialism um, by the British. And um, also, like, that, that group used to be referred to as Black, um, you know, historically in the U.K. And then, you know, it's over, over time, it's shifted to being Asian. And uh, in... In the UK, uh, folks who are, you know, Chinese, Vietnamese, um, there's kind of a different grouping called East and Southeast Asian or ESEA. Um, So, yeah, same thing with, you know, how um, Black Caribbean uh, immigrants are categorized differently. It's like just looking from country to country between the US and Europe, um, you can tell like it's just based on the society that we're that the context we're, we're talking about um, totally affects vocabulary and identity labels. Totally, because, you know, I tell the story that if I hadn't gotten this education degree, <laughs> I would have uh, studied linguistics, um, understanding that um, words matter, dialects matter, the power to name and rename, um, as we keep hearing here today, is so important to us as minoritized populations, thinking about the place that we're in and the political solidarity. So we've talked a lot about um, 
this concept of othering and the social construction of the other. And we've heard that um, it can be used as a tool to divide us, right? To divide and conquer by a common oppressor. But I want to go back a little bit to um, something that Superna mentioned earlier about learning about how to identify after coming here as an immigrant. And you talked about uh, folks wanting to identify you as being third world. And uh, there is a connection for me as a radical feminist organizer and thinking about um, the TWWA or the Third World Women's Alliance and really understanding the political solidarity that comes out of um, what we refer to today as intersectionality. You know, we can go back to Triple Jeopardy (laughs) that was written 40, 50 years ago. Um, So it's not a new concept, just the new name that we're talking about it. But I want to ask you all a little bit around this uh, conversation around intersectionality, but also incommensurability. So Grace Hong talks about this um, in a chapter in a book that talks about Asian American and women of color feminisms and really understanding that our identities have been used to divide us. But when we begin to get together, it becomes this point of um, incommensurability. So I wanted to ask either one of you what you thought about that, the relationship around intersectionality and incommensurability. Yeah, I think uh, I'll start with, um, I think what you were asking about um, how it, how, ident- how, how identities can be used to divide um, and to the the reference to thinking about the third world. Um, There are times when um, I see how, you know, sometimes people don't want to use the term third world um, because it's, uh, some consider it as, okay, it's it's signaling, you know, backwardness and uh, primitiveness and and all of that. And, and I know there's the usage of global south. Um, there's like the whole developing versus developed world uh, concepts as well. And I personally uh, like to use third world because, I mean, for me, it um, kind of helps me uh, maintain a sense of history um, and I, it's a little easier for me to remember my journey, um, you know, coming from the third world to the United States and becoming a person of color, um, and also understanding U.S. history, like my place, um, with, um, those who are indigenous, those who were enslaved, but also those um, uh, migrants and immigrants who uh, continue to come um, as a result of, of uh, U.S. empire and other empires. Um, and um, um, I, I think a part of solidarity is to make those historical connections um, and that we live in a world with 
with multiple racisms, um, that there are parallels and there are intersections of those racisms. Um, and whether we're talking about a PETA or AAPIO amongst different communities of color in the U.S., um, th those those histories are important for for me at least to understand and keep learning because there's there's so much that myself um, I I often remark uh, in Opal circles that AAPI people. Uh, persons and API persons, uh, we need to know each other's histories. We don't know enough about one another. Um, and so um, um, hopefully that that kind of uh, gets to what uh, gets to the the tough question that you asked us. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, as an organizer, right, as an organizer, as someone who identifies as a minoritized population, it's important for us to know one another's history, because there are places where um, they intersect, and it's very clear as day. But then there are also places where they run parallel. So it may not be the exact same thing. But I know I can look over across the way and send you a fist or a thumbs up or some love and some encouragement because we have this clarity that the same system that's oppressing people who might identify like me racially are the same people in the same system that's oppressing people who identify like you. And so I think that brings us to the, the concept of race and racism and the other. So, uh, you know, I want to open it up to Tessa to comment on um, any of that, thinking about the concepts of race and racism as they intersect with the other. And what does that mean for us as uh, political beings? Right. So really understanding that these terms that we create for ourselves can serve as this political solidarity. And what does that continue to mean for us as we continue to organize across lines of difference? Yeah, what immediately comes to mind um, would be um, some of the the learnings from you know the disability justice movement that really um, pinpoint white supremacy and anti-blackness as like the foundation for a lot of other forms of oppression, um, you know, ableism, sexism, um, homophobia, all of these, all of these different. Uh, forms of prejudice and discrimination that um, kind of ostracize and oppress groups that are not seen as normal. So, you know, just looking at what what is seen as the dominant normal um, way to be human. Um, and I do, I agree that a lot of it stems from, um, from anti-Blackness, uh, white supremacy. Um, I also think about how, um, at least in the U.S. context, you know, there's sort of this belief out there that you can transcend racism um, if you're a person of color, if you sort of adopt the right behaviors, you know, go into the right career field, um, speak with the right accent, like follow follow the types of norms that um, whiteness and you know patriarchy kind of values over everything else. Um, and that, you know, this idea that um, you can assimilate and you can really achieve whiteness if you try hard enough and if you follow the right, um, the right playbook, follow the American dream. Um, 
And I think the pandemic has really shown us that that's not really possible <laughs> and that no level of, you know, education or, um, you know, perfecting your accent or, um, you know, even money, it, it, it all gives you more privilege, but it never, um, it doesn't protect you from white supremacy, right? It doesn't really um, give you that ticket to becoming a white person. Um, and yeah, I, I hope that makes sense. I mean, I just see so many examples of that, of um, people trying to protect themselves, trying to protect their children and their family members through assimilation. Um, but it, it hasn't really, you know, produced a society where people like us are safe from harm, you know, where we're not um, at risk of being uh, a victim of violence, you know, either interpersonally on the streets or, you know, through um, through systemic forms of violence like, you know, deportation or, um, you know, being being a target of, of incarceration. So um, those are some of my, my thoughts about that question. I think that really resonates with me and, and really brings me to my next question in terms of thinking about you know, the tendency to use othering, um, especially in its most pejorative term, as it is systematically um, used to marginalize, um, as a tool to stop immigration or to extend, quote unquote, citizenship benefits to only certain um, types of populations deemed, quote unquote, worthy, right? Um, like, how do you all as organizers and, and moving in different spaces, how do you kind of work against those tactics and what tactics are you using, right? So we've talked a lot about solidarity, but, you know, um, with some specificity too, in terms of like, what does that solidarity work look like um, in terms of kind of reacting to uh, those types of practices? Soprano, do you want to start? Sure. I think um, there's no just one um kind of silver bullet tactic um, that multiple simultaneous uh, tactics uh, approaches uh, are needed. And um, I mean, some of the things that I can, you know, reflect on some of Opal's work as well um, has been, for instance, the... Um, immigration justice work, um, telling people stories, using visuals. Um, so in many ways to, to generate uh, a narrative uh, that like this, this is what we look, look like, we are here. Uh, um, these are the, the kinds of uh, things that we aspire for. Um, and um, and that, that this is not some something super unusual um, either, but there are, there's in some circumstances, there are uh, uh, unusual circumstances as well. Um, so I think the immigrant uh, immigration justice uh, project has been something that has been um, something I think very valuable uh, by um bringing in stories and bringing in visuals. But I, I would say a second um, kind of goal of, of that project 
is to connect different communities. So it was not just um, API uh, communities that um, immigrants, for instance, in Ohio um, are, you know, black and brown and come from uh, uh, multiple migrations. Um, and what we are encountering, particularly in the, in the early 21st century, um, are, you know, persons um, not only from, um, you know, Central America or Mexico, but from the Caribbean and multiple nations in um, Africa, as well as multiple nations in Asia, for instance, um, and and this is how we connect. These are some of the going back to our parallels and intersections. Um, and uh, what are the how are the stories of immigrants uh, and refugees similar and different? Um, so I think telling uh, stories that are not usually available, uh, providing images, uh, and also you know cutting across different communities. Um, and um, another. Uh, important thing that I that would be also helpful to note is how often different groups of immigrants are also kind of pitted against each other, like the the more desirables versus the undesirables, uh, the more deserving immigrant uh, versus the undeserving, and and that's where um, issues uh, you know our experiences across socioeconomic class, for instance. Uh, uh, must be also um, discussed, um, and um, you know um, who are who are the immigrants uh, that suffer, um, have to deal with, um, or uh, who are more who are the more who are the communities with more undocumented um, persons who are who are detained, who are the persons more surveilled and deported. So those are those are. Um, the kinds of questions that that we must ask and we must be there to uh, back. Um, so, so, so some. I think those are some of the the ways in which that I think as organizers that we've tried to kind of raise this raise the issue in Ohio, um, and also um, having conversations. Um, it's it's extremely difficult to be in conversation. With 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 people, um, uh, and this is a, a a great great opportunity to actually be in conversation with all of you. But it, it's uh, pretty rare to be able to do that because uh, we we live in spaces where other people don't have time or don't want to actually kind of work, you know, really understand. Um, and so we've had those kinds of moments through Opal as well. Um, Particularly in relation to um, violence uh, that are that's been directed towards um, API communities um, during the pandemic, and um, and this is uh, another project where we all um, decided, you know, we will eat together. It was another campaign where during the pandemic over Zoom across different cities in Ohio, um, we would literally. Um, get takeout, preferably from um, uh, um, an Asian um, um, restaurant, an independent restaurant, and actually be in conversation. Uh, and I'm sure Tessa can um, talk a lot more about um, 
multiple, these projects as well as several other projects? Um, yes, I, I love the, all of the projects that you mentioned. Um, one of the, the storytelling campaign that Suparna was talking about is um, we, we, call, we titled the initiative um, Love Has No Borders because it's really about how um, our immigration system consistently keeps families apart or, you know, separates them um, if, they, if, they're, if they were able to be reunited in the U.S. Um, and I think it goes back to, you know, the conservative movement in the U.S. has really um, been able to push this dominant narrative of like conservatives are the family, you know, are the, are the group that's really pro-family and um, about conserving the nuclear family. But it's a very coded version of that story because it's really like white upper middle class uh, family that they're talking about because um, our immigration system does not does not value family unity. And I think, you know, dating back to before the country was founded, um, there were so many laws and practices that um, attracted immigrants to the U.S. and, you know, where their labor was desired, but then um, their human need to care for their families and build families in the U.S. was, you know, completely ignored or, um, you know, opposed. And, it's really like seeing certain people as less than human because um, every single human has this very natural need to live with the people that they love. <laughs> and, um, you know, during the Chinese Exclusion Act, there were um, lots of male laborers here in the country that just legally could not bring, bring their wives um, and their families over to the U.S. So there was this huge um, generation of just bachelors that, um, you know, had, had no ability to, to raise families, raise children. Um, so yeah, that was what the, the storytelling campaign really, um, the common theme of all of the stories, you know, of immigrants from around the world, um, was showing how in these very, um, seemingly different ways, you know, their interactions with the, the legal immigration system and, um, immigration enforcement forced them to be apart from the people that they loved and um, yeah trying to trying to show how um, if we were to build this multiracial solidarity um, really go after uh, the flaws in the immigration system um, that we could really achieve um, more, more healing and justice for a huge group of immigrants rather than, you know, just focusing on um, H-1B visa holders or just focusing on, you know, people who've come in through the refugee system or people who, you know, have, have benefited from DACA. Like all of these different groups um, have suffered through a lot of pain and um, just really um, stressful, you know, unconscionable um, experiences and, we need to we need to look at the root the root cause of the problem. Yes, yes, all of that. <laughs> I mean, those are examples of this socially constructed other, you know, other as immigrant, right? We could keep going down this list. Um, it makes me think about um, 
uh, Professor Hassan Jeffries at OSU was giving a talk talking about social justice. And he talked about this process of Ellis Island and how for white immigrant families and communities, it's like, oh, we came here and we went through Ellis Island. And for some folks, there's a landmark, there are actual names, there are actual documents. And then, you know, like we know that, but we don't really talk about it. But let me tell you what really made me think about this in a different way. Is there is an Ancestry.com commercial that's highlighting someone, oh, their family story, their lineage. Yes, everyone needs to know that where they come from. But on this Ancestry.com, there's this story about this family coming through Ellis Island. And how many people are they intentionally othering by telling this story, saying that this is an American story. You know, I haven't seen them talk about, you know, anyone else that would be considered an immigrant that hasn't come through Ellis Island. But we think about these things in such this theory and this abstract, but then we have to pay attention to how it shows up in pop culture every day. Right. And so folks who are experiencing that, um, you know, many of us work in classrooms with young people, they're experiencing that. And that's their point of reference for as we're talking about these types of things. So I want to ask both of you, as we begin to wrap up our conversation, what's the most important thing when thinking about the confluence of race and democracy. What do you want to leave with our listeners? Um, thinking about all the things that we've talked about, um, some of the tools that you gave, thinking about family structures, communicating across lines of difference, but then also st- storytelling, storytelling as a practice of freedom, um, storytelling within our families and within our communities, but then again, also across lines of difference. So what do you see as the most important aspect when thinking about the confluence of race and democracy? Well, one thing that struck me uh, about what you just said was, uh, you know, the Ancestry.com bit is that there is this kind of um, dominant narrative that, you know, America is a land of immigrants, a nation of immigrants. And that can be uh, quite misleading, to put it like in a mild way. because it lumps all migrants and immigrants in the same fashion, um, number one. Um, it, for instance, does not take into account internal forced migration, like the Trail of Tears, for instance, um, doesn't take into account um, the forced uh, migration uh, movement of um, enslaved persons um, from West Africa or the forced uh, migrations uh, from the South um, uh, referred to as the Great Migrations to the Northeast and Midwest. Um, But it also um, assumes that settler colonialism is the same as um, what we see uh, with different kinds of immigration and migration that that came afterwards, and um, all those histories are like kind of flattened out. Um, and so, going to your question about you know what I see as the most important aspect when thinking about the confluence uh, of race and democracy, 
Um, one thing that jumps out is um, the idea of democracy, just like the idea of race. They're both socially made. Um, they're contested. They're contradictory. They're debated. It's elusive. It's changes in time and space. Um, if you think about U.S. democracy, um, when U.S. democracy was being socially made or constructed and named, it was happening during the time when the majority of U.S. residents were not considered to be Americans or citizens uh, or part of the American polity. Um, most were either indigenous or enslaved or Chinese or women or poor men or immigrants. Um, and so um, I see that, that, you know, we use the term democracy um, a lot. You know, it's associated with, you know, either forms of government or uh, democracy at our work uh, or in our intimate lives and so on. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's promise and potential uh, for inclusion and for power and resource sharing um, has not has been uneven and um, has not been realized for for most persons. Um, but um, it is as we work towards um, redefining, uh, revaluing all these um, racialized constructions as well. Um, it's important that we continue to to struggle uh, um, and try to claim as much of that um, inclusion and power sharing. Um, so I have a, a few things to add. Um, I would say I think that a lot of people are still understanding white supremacy as you know, it is this belief that um, that white people are superior to, to people of other races, but it is also um, a real valuing of, um, you know, values and traditions and beliefs and behaviors that are associated with whiteness. It's not just about um, the color of people's skin or, or their, their DNA, um, but what is our value system? What do we as a society, um, what is the story that we tell of, you know, how, how we need to live and interact with each other. Um, and in the U S we're obviously very, uh, skewed towards, you know, a really individualistic, um, mindset of, you know, domination of, you know, being completely separate from one another. And I think there's a real contradiction between that um, that value system and, you know, a healthy functioning democracy. Um, so I, I would say, um, I, in order for our democracy to really um, live out its, its intention and purpose, um, we, we kind of need to uh, shift, we need to do a drastic shift towards um, some of the values of, you know, indigenous communities, of many communities of color, of many third world 
<laughs> countries and communities um, of valuing interdependence and connection with um, the people who live around us. Um, I know during the pandemic, it's kind of been um, made more clear that like so many people don't have a strong support system. So many people don't have um, even like a friend or a family member that they can call on if something, if they need help, if something happens to them. Um, and that's not the way that humans have survived, you know, throughout, um, throughout centuries and millennia. We've, we've always needed each other and um, our democracy only works when um, people kind of recognize that, recognize that um, what impacts one of us impacts all of us. So uh, I want to wrap us up with this quote. I think that this, um, I'm going to just read it. I don't have to intro it. I'm going to just read it. <laughs> it's uh, Frederick Douglass. Let me give you a word for the philosophy of reform. The whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concessions yet made to her August claims must have been born of earnest struggle. The conflict has been exciting, agitating, all absorbing, and for the time being, putting all other tumults to silence. It must do this or it does nothing. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one or it may be a physical one and it may be moral and physical, but it must be struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never will. It never did. And it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to. And you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. And these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or both. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those of those whom they oppress. Frederick Douglass coming from his famous speech, <laughs> if there is no struggle, there is no progress, 1857. So we've been doing this a long time. We have been struggling. We have also been progressing, but we must continue our struggle. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tessa. Thank you, Saperna, for joining us. We really appreciate this dialogue. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Ashley Nichols, and my co-host this week was Dr. Shamara Arkey. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio in Cleveland, Ohio. This series is supported by Mark LeWine and the John Gray Painter Program. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the podcast, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, swag, featuring designs by Donuts and Coffee, head on over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue our conversation about race and democracy in Northeast Ohio.